0: So okay. my computer is, as we know, about to die.
1: Literally, I, at any moment.
0: <laughs> it it, it blue screened me yesterday, and I had to download one more final driver to make these headphones work for today. Maybe they'll even show up with my new computer that was due to arrive hours ago in the middle of us recording a podcast.
1: I guess that would kind of follow the way things go with tech for you. That they're yeah. just going to pound on your door in the middle of the interview.
0: My That's tech mirrors my body, my muscles, and my musculoskeletal <laughs> system, does it All not?
1: falling apart. Wait, does your musculoskeletal system have a literal blue screen? I want to see this. You just turn bright blue before everything falls apart. <laughs>
0: I do. I do turn blue. Yeah, as I'm <laughs> That
1: might be hypoxia.
0: <laughs> push everything a little bit harder. I use it a little, bit, a little longer bit longer than so the manufacturer intended. intended. Life, life history, life history trade-offs, trade-offs in computers and humans. It's is. actually, it's an, actually excellent an excellent segue because we're talking to we're talking someone to who someone specializes, someone specializes in life, life history, history theory, theory today.
1: today. This is true. We've got Dr. Brooke Skelza. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Who is a professor of anthropology at UCLA. She T-shirt. is a human behavioral ecologist who is interested in understanding the adaptive nature of behavior as a function of local Socioecological context. Her research focuses on a variety of questions related to reproductive decision-making and parental investment, and on understanding the social environment as a critical influence on how people negotiate life history trade-offs. Yay, segues. Awesome. Uh, she is also the director of the Kuneni Rural Health and Demography Project, and Brooke works among the Himba examining marital and non-marital fertility, female social support networks, health and well-being, and as I said before, parental investment. So I am going to click the little allow her in the room.
0: I'm going to elegantly find out how to pronounce her name correctly. Hello. Hello. So welcome to the Sausage of Science. If you could start us off by just pronouncing your name correctly for us, we're having a, a battle. And also telling us and our listeners your preferred pronouns.
2: Yeah, um, so it's Brooke Shelza. We're
0: both wrong. There's
2: an H in it, but there's not. Yeah. Um, and she, her, hers.
1: Good. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time. Uh, we're really excited. You are super productive. And yeah, everyone saw your tweet the other day. And I will be the first to admit, when Chris sent it to me, I'm like, well, I'm useless. But it was a good thing because it forced me to go back to my own CV to see how productive I've been during the pandemic and I'm like, well damn, I've actually done really well. So thank you for allowing me to self-reflect. I have to say that most of this actually was
2: not pandemic productivity. It was stuff that was done right before the pandemic and then was like sitting in review and stuff like that. So. Almost none of that was actual writing that occurred during the pandemic. I have been much less productive since having to homeschool two children. for. Yeah, (laughs) what
1: ages? What ages?
2: Eight and six. Eight and six. It was kindergarten and second grade that we did on Zoom.
1: Which means that is not the kind of thing where you could just, like, set it and forget it. That requires some hands-on effort.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Although my second grader was remarkably Hmm. self-sufficient. He needed... Fairly little help because he could read and everything, yeah. You know? And so he was like on Google Docs and doing all sorts of stuff. And and uh, but my daughter in kindergarten, it was a whole other.
1: Yeah. Story. Are they back in person? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Finally. Okay. It'll be interesting to see the papers on family dynamics and relationships mm. post COVID. My kids are college age. They just started school, and I just had lunch with them, and they were saying, "Yeah, we talked to all our friends and." They all talk about how glad they are to be at college because they didn't have great relationships with their parents. We're kind of like, yeah, we get along with our parents and our brothers. Yes. And I'm just like, yes, for the win. Nice. The mean, that that's something COVID did for us. We were forced together for a year and a half <laughs> and we liked it. It's,
1: it's
2: pretty much like the biggest parenting win you can get, I think, to like actually have your children like you during your teenage years. <laughs> I feel like. That's...
0: I know. I dropped the mic right in Taco Bell as they said that.
1: I mean, that's the thing is like anytime I see you all posting pictures of, you know, your family, like now because they've all gone off to college, I'm like, damn, they have a really great relationship. And it's so heartwarming. So good on you. Anyway, Brooke, we want to learn a little bit more about who you are and in particular, how you got interested in anthropology and how you decided to pursue it as a career.
2: Well, I had a really bizarre, circuitous route. So I, you went to U of M, right? To Michigan? So, so did I for undergrad.
1: Go blue! What year?
2: 98 I graduated. And I was in the School of Natural Resources because I was sure when I was in high school that I wanted to do environmental science or something like that. And Michigan had one of the best places in the country to do that. So I went to the School of Natural Resources. There were people there like Bobby Lowe, who was doing HBE, and I never encountered her, and never took a class with her. I really had like almost no engagement with anthropology in college. And I was working for environmental nonprofits after I graduated, but doing like environmental ed. And so I decided that I should probably learn something about education and uh, education policy and pedagogy. So I decided to do a master's of education and Harvard has this kind of weird master's of ed program that's like a one-year self-designed program, and the only requirements are you take any four classes in the School of Education and any four classes anywhere else in all of Harvard. So I was like, that sounds fun. So I did that, and then I was looking through the course catalog trying to find any class that was about anything about environmental studies. And there was a class in the anthropology department called Evolutionary Ecology of Environmental Management. And it was taught by a guy named Mark Leighton, who is a orangutan primatologist. And I was like, this sounds fun. I'll take this. And interestingly, it was, let's see, who was in there with me? Herman Ponser was in there. It was his first year of grad school. Sonia Kallenberg, who I think does primatology still, and there are a couple other people. So it was, it was only, I think, like, four intro bio-anth grad students and me, like, basically just along for the ride. And it was my first introduction to any kind of study of evolution in human behavior, and I was just completely hooked. So then Mark Layton said, well, if you like this class, next semester, Frank Marlowe is teaching human behavioral ecology. You should go and take that class. So I signed up for that, and Chris von Rudin was an undergrad in that class with me. So it's like all these people that wound up, you know, being connected through the years. And so I took that class. And by the end of the year, I was like, forget this whole environmental ed thing. I want to go and get a PhD in anthropology. And so then I applied to grad program, took a year off, traveled around the world while my applications were pending, and then came back and did a PhD at the University of Washington with Eric Smith, who was my PhD advisor.
0: You know, biological anthropology, that program has a major, major footprint.
2: Absolutely. I, I did not experience any of it, but I am aware of it now
1: in retrospect. The interesting thing is that the footprint is both with undergrads as well as grad students. And, and it's rare, and I feel, to. Programs. Yeah. And I, I think it's really, really impressive that they've been able to build something, you know, such a powerful anthropology machine.
0: So it's obvious then for us, maybe not for all listeners, based on who you have studied with, you know, why you have gone the human behavioral ecology route, and maybe even why you're studying paternity and paternal care. But I'll I'll ask you, you know, like we can often move away from our advisors or come up with our own ideas or, or choose to build on something. So what led you to the topic that we're talking to you about today? And I suspect it's not your only research topic, too. So where does it fit in your sort of research trajectory?
2: So my dissertation research was in Australia. Eric had been working with Rebecca Bleagy-Bird and Doug Bird. So I wound up working at their field site out in Australia. And my dissertation was on kind of the relationship that parents and offspring have as the children are transitioning into adulthood. And so there was one paper on fathers that came out of that. And then other stuff looking at sort of grandmother hypothesis kind of stuff. And then when I finished, it's a really tiny community and there, you know, Doug and Rebecca had long-term connections there and they had other students. So I was like, I probably need to go out and find uh, another place to actually continue working. So I had dinner at A's with Polly Wiesner, right? And she was really gracious. And we were, she said, you know, what do you want to do next? And I was like, I don't know. I want to do something still looking at mothers and daughters, but I need to be in a place where there's more babies. Because in this community in Australia, there were like 10 babies that were the focus of that chapter of my dissertation. And I was like, if I want to look at health outcomes or anything, I need a bigger population. She said, you should go to Namibia. So she hooked me up with a German culture anthropologist named Michael Bollig, who worked with Himba in Namibia. I Randomly went out on spring break of my first year at UCLA and just went to Namibia for the week and met with Michael Bullock and then drove around and met the man who wound up being my close research assistant for much of my early years working out there. And he was great. And Michael Bullock had said to me, we have all this stuff on cattle and men, but nobody's really talking to women. So somebody should come out and, you know, actually start talking to women. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. So the next year I went out and I started, this was 2010, started actually doing research. And one of the first things I tried to do was just basic marital and reproductive histories. So I was asking these women you know, how many times have you been married and then listing all their kids. And then I was trying to link kids to marriage. And almost on like the first or second interview, this woman said, "Okay, well, these kids are from this husband and these kids are from this husband and these kids are a mocha. And there's been different sort of words that they've used to describe this. But essentially what she was saying was these kids were fathered by somebody other than her husband's. And they were not out of wedlock kids. There's lots of kids who are born also just outside of marriage. She was making this distinction between social and biological fatherhood. And I was like, huh, okay, interesting. And then I kept doing these interviews and this kept coming up over and over again to the point that I was like, well, this is probably something I should systematically ask about (laughs) since it's something that they're bringing up. And so I did. And then the next year I went back and started interviewing men and asking them. And it was the same thing. They could go through their kids and give me basically their paternity assertions. You know, I think this one's mine, mine, not mine, mine, not mine. So that was how it started. It was just, I had no intention of studying this at all. And it was from there that I then sort of started looking at the theory and reading, you know, Sarah Hurdy and people like that to try to understand, you know, well, this is quite interesting, given that we still sort of are so dominated by thinking that having multiple partners is good for men and not that great for women. So that was what kind of led to the whole research agenda.
1: So then let's take a step back, you know, from the, you know, these different marital and extramarital pairs and tell us about the people. So you work with the HIMBA, who are the HIMBA and tell us about how that came about.
2: Okay. So, I mean, I really am working just in one community so i at least up till now i've decided to kind of focus on learning about the dynamics in this one particular community as opposed to going out and working in like six or seven different areas and so Himba are pastoralists. They continue to be semi nomadic. They have cows, goats, and sheep. And then they also have gardens. So they're more agro pastoralists than other Himba who are living further in the mountains and are less likely to have gardens. So they've got sort of maize and sorghum and things like that to supplement the milk and meat that they're bringing in from the livestock. And they live in this kind of 40 or so households that I've been working with. They're about an hour and a half from the closest town. And they're still. Still relatively cut off from markets. So, I mean, everybody has a cell phone, that's ubiquitous, but nobody has electricity or running water. So they've got like a little solar charger for their phones, but the kind of major infrastructure is still missing. There's more and more cash coming in. The school is getting bigger and bigger. So all of that stuff is rapidly changing. And the fact that they're so cut off is sort of a product of all kinds of colonial policies and things like that about their ability to sell their livestock and things like that. But they are rapidly market integrating, but are, you know, on the scale compared to most other people are still living mostly off of their own um, subsistence still.
0: So we're going to jump forward in time then from when you, you started doing these interviews and you learned that they have these, I guess, arrangements or sort of kinship patterns that run counter to sort of the model that we're accustomed to. In the U.S., in last year, your colleagues and you put out a paper in Science Advances where you looked at maybe the impact of what is, I guess, in the trade called extra pair paternity. It's paternity outside of marriage. As you indicate, they seem to have a sense of this from both sides, right? So first, I'm just curious, you know, this is not a fancy pants way for you to say cuckolded, right, which is the way we would maybe describe that in the U.S. So so what's going on that we're trying to understand biologically and socially?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this term cuckoldry, actually, because the concept of cuckoldry, right, like inherent in that is the idea that men or males, depending on what species you're talking about, are being tricked into basically misallocating investment in non-biological offspring. And the more that I kind of started to understand what was going on, the less convinced I am that cuckoldry is really the appropriate term to describe this. So by extra pair paternity, we just mean paternity that's occurring outside of the pair, in this case, the marital pair, right? So again, like it's not including the births that occur between marriages or before marriage, right? These are Couples who are married, which of those kids are biologically fathered by somebody else. And both men and women seem to be remarkably accurate at knowing which of these kids are from the husband. So that's the first part of cuckoldry that I think sort of goes out the window in this case. And then the second is that when we've actually looked at investment, the men are not biasing their investment anywhere near as much as you might think that they would, given how high the rate of extra paternity is. I mean, we should just say it's 48%. <laughs> so, Oh, wow. So.
0: Meaning you would expect them to be investing more in ones that they assume were theirs and a sort of doing, and I'm doing air quotes, a sort of redheaded stepchild kind of treatment to the others, but you're not seeing that. You're seeing that they invest in every kid.
2: So we looked at the norms, like we, we did a study where we did some vignettes where we asked them about, you know, is it OK or not OK for a father to bias their treatment against these non-biological offspring? And far and away in each different type of investment, they say, like, no, no, that's not OK. It's not OK. Now, is it done? Yeah. Both their impression is that, yes, it's done sometimes, but then we looked at actual outcomes. In some cases, we found some differences, but really not as strong as you might expect, given that almost half the kids are not from the husband.
1: So you said that almost half, so 48% of the kids are from extra pair paternity, and you said they were really accurate at actually knowing which kids. So how close was that? Like, what actually was the alignment between thinking and, and doing the genetic tests? So
2: first of all, men and women were really similar in their accuracy. So they were both, it was like somewhere between 70 and 75% accurate. So we went back and we reported these results back to them. We had sort of an elaborate method, which we can talk about later about how to collect these data and and what to report and what I know and what they know. But we reported back the aggregate results. And it was such a good thing to do before publishing for lots of ethical reasons, but also just for the practical reason that we said, we sort of explained to them that they were right about 75% of the times. And they said, oh, no, we're right more than that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And what they said was that, there are going to be cases where people will tell you that the child is theirs, even if they actually suspect that it's not theirs. And the reason for that was they said, you know, it's really important that you understand that we consider these to be our children right? That notion of social fatherhood is incredibly important. And there's much less importance placed on biological paternity. And when we looked at the error rate, right? So there are two ways that you can be wrong in that 25% of the time that they're wrong. You can be wrong for saying the child is yours when it's not yours and wrong by saying it's not yours when it is yours. And 90% of the time that they're wrong, They're wrong in the direction of saying that it's theirs when it's not actually theirs. So exactly what they were telling us was going on. So we actually think that that error is not actually, at least a lot of it, probably not their error and probably just a reporting bias in that they're telling us something that's probably not, you know, a perfect reflection of what they actually believe.
1: So it's almost like the social structure of it is driving the error and how they view paternity.
2: Yeah, and the social structure of it was driving the way that they spoke to us, especially in these like initial interviews. Because the interviews where we got the paternity assertions also happened over the course of multiple years. And so... The nice thing about working with the same 40 families over and over again is that we see and interview the same people over and over again. And you could just see, I mean, you guys I'm sure know this, right? Like the more you talk to somebody, the better the information that you're getting is. And so on the third time that we talk to somebody, they might be more likely to say like, yeah, well, actually these two kids are probably not mine. But if we only spoke to somebody once, they would be more likely to say like, yeah, they're all mine. Right? So I think it, it really is like a reporting error to us, as opposed to an error about them actually mistreat paternity.
1: So, I mean, we've been kind of doing this whole thing with measurements anyway for the for the podcast, and I'm sure folks are at home are much more familiar with actual DNA paternity tests. So, we don't need to go into that. But you said there was an extensive way that you all went about measuring the way fathers and mothers viewed paternity. So tell us how you did that, because that does seem complicated and how you get at that.
2: I mean, I'll leave the sort of technical aspects of the paternity testing to our geneticists, because I honestly, I was not the person in the lab doing any of that. But we did this really kind of slow, deliberate process of trying to figure out how to actually run this study, right? Because it's potentially incredibly risky, to try to study non-paternity because, especially if you think about it from the kind of Western viewpoint about what a big deal it is if you were to discover a non-paternity event. Now, on the one hand, we knew that Himba don't think about these things the same way that we do, but we still were very concerned about doing anything that could possibly alter relationship dynamics between couples or the way that parents treated their children or something like that, right? And so we talked to the community members, and the first part was sort of helping them to understand what this DNA test is and, you know, the fact that it could tell us about deep ancestry and how they're related to other groups, but it could also tell us about the relationships between specific individuals. So they understood that, and then we said, well, it seems like the best thing to do here is not reveal individual results. But then it seemed unfair that I would know the answers to those individual results, and they wouldn't. I mean, it seemed unfair. It seemed risky in that, like, maybe I have some sort of tell that I don't know about when I'm speaking to somebody, right? So we decided that we would do it double blind. So the way that we had to do that was we had the geneticist, then we have Richard McElreath at MPI, who's like our statistician, and then me and Sean Prahl, mostly doing all the data collection in the field. And so we would get all this demographic interview information about people and collect the DNA samples. The samples go to the geneticist, Brenna Hen, who's at UC Davis. She then would send the paternity results to Richard McElreath. We could send Richard information about those people. Richard would then run the stats and he would only send us aggregate results. But he can never send us something like a scatter plot, right? Because I could maybe look at that scatter plot and be able to tell, like, well I only know one guy who has 17 kids, so this must be his dog. <laughs> So it's a little bit complicated. And I was also a little bit worried that this would be too complicated for people to understand in the process of consent. That was their concern. So we did the data collection really slowly and we explained this to them. And that allowed us to like come back for multiple years and see what kinds of questions people asked, right? Like if everybody had the expectation that they were going to get individual level results back when we came back, that would have been an indication that we did an unsatisfactory job in the consent process. And so we were happy to to know that that was not how it panned out they seem to understand the importance of not revealing that information you know they would even say like well i don't care you know it doesn't matter to me and i would say like okay like i get that it doesn't matter to you but can you picture you know somebody else that you know and like maybe it would matter to them they're like yeah yeah yeah, it wouldn't bother me but i can completely see how it might bother somebody else so
0: so you basically had a falsifiability criteria for your consent process, which is pretty pretty rigorous scientific approach. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, I think, and I mean, I don't know, I'm becoming more and more an advocate of slow science, which is not very conducive to the kinds of publication pressures that we face as professors, right? I also, I have tenure, so it can be a little slower, I guess. But But I think it really mattered in this case a lot to know that we had kind of checks in the system and we were able to like present the results back as like a post hoc check and make sure that like once they knew what we were gonna say in the paper, were they still okay with us saying it and stuff like that. So
0: and I want to circle back to that because we just interviewed Claudia Vallegia about the same sort of thing where she as a senior scholar has a slower approach than she had earlier. And there is an inherent tension there. And I want to dig into that in a second because you guys have actually a paper on this as well. I want to emphasize and ask a little bit about your team and emphasize that when we talk about the results, we're talking about your team's doing a ton of work. You had 700 cheek and saliva swabs from 47 men who fathered 257 children, right? That's what I saw in that paper. And I assume... That's just what you analyze. So there are probably more, right? And so you said you're working with Sean Prawl, you're working with Rena Hen, Richard McElreath.
2: Maclee, yeah.
0: And I think we heard his name when we interviewed Katie Starkweather the other day, right? And who else is on your team? Who are your, your your folks that you work with in Namibia?
2: So there's Jacob Shihama is a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Namibia. So he is on our team also. And especially, I think, like where we're going in the future, we're thinking about more public health interventions and stuff like that will be increasingly sort of in his wheelhouse. And then we have a whole team of Namibians who work with us who, you know, are not academics, but who are obviously instrumental to actually getting the work done.
0: So, how does one run a giant multinational team of people at various levels of their career like that? That in and of itself, not just the the study that you did, but managing that kind of infrastructure, how do you do that?
2: I mean, we're pretty small compared to something like the Schwar Life History Project or the Chimane Project or something like that, right? Like, I mean, Sean and I basically collected all the data ourselves between you know in the last i guess i've been there since 2010 he's been there since 2016 but i mean we really did all the interviews and everything like that ourselves and so it is slow just because of that as opposed to sort of if you have a project where you hire a team of namibians who go out and they're all interviewing and you're sort of managing them we do it a little differently and that's because The ethnography has been really important, and I feel like it really, really helps me to do the interviews myself so I can ask follow-up questions and I can dig deeper into something. But a lot of what we've tried to figure out is how to have a sort of complementary balance of skills. We have hormone data and sleep data and all sorts of other kind of more human biology kind of stuff. And I sort of stay out of that whole thing. So that's much more Sean's wheelhouse. And we also have sort of a gender division, frankly, like where he does a little bit more of the stuff with men and I do the stuff with women and then we'll divide it up that way sometimes. But having everybody kind of have their niche, I thought was really important. And that's something when I went to work with Rebecca and Doug um, for my dissertation, that helped a lot for me to have a piece of the pie as a student that was fairly distinct from what they were doing so that we weren't stepping on each other's toes and, and stuff like that.
0: I have a follow up on that because that brings up sort of questions that's been percolating here over the course of the interview. And Karen and I talk about this sort of around the, the edges a little bit, right? So we're doing this for the Human Biology Association. I was trained as a biocultural, Karen was trained as a bio. I work in a biocultural medical program, but I call myself a human behavioral ecologist, but was trained by an evolutionary psychologist. So like, if a listener out there is coming into this field, and even some of us who are senior faculty, wrapping our heads around these disciplinary gradations of what we call ourselves and then how we divide up the labor and responsibilities is tricky. So How do you define you, like in your program, at your institution, or your training, or how do you approach your work, and what do you say you are?
2: I guess I always have said either human behavioral ecologist or evolutionary anthropologist, although now, I think it's Clark Barrett that first used in print, at least, the term evolutionary social scientist, which is a little broader, right? Because So he is a psychologist by training, so it brings that kind of piece of the field in. And some of what I do is more of psyche than HB-ish, I guess. I like that term, too. I mean, I just... I mean, A, there are so many terms. B, I think the boundaries between those terms are just getting fuzzier and fuzzier, right?
0: Which is good, in my opinion.
2: Totally good. And I think that part of it is because HBE, right, traditionally black boxed, all of these proximate mechanisms. And I think increasingly in our field, you're seeing more integration, whether it's through kind of cooperative team-based approaches or just behavioral ecologists themselves doing the work, but of trying to bring in and look at sort of what's going on under the hood. And that is also integrating like a cultural evolution approach and thinking about social learning. So I don't know, I care less and less about the terms, honestly.
1: This goes back to one of our first interviews, I feel, Chris, with Carolyn Jost Robinson, where she talked about how she doesn't fit neatly within a box. And that's why her work right. was so unique and so impactful, because that labeling ends up limiting people so much more than if you just go out and do the work and present it as is.
0: I suppose I ask because I had a lot of identity crisis coming out of grad school and see it because there's a lot of rancor in the field among some of these quote-unquote sub-disciplines or disciplines. And and I personally am not a fan of that. I try to push back against it. So when we have folks on the podcast who maybe fall into an HBE, like, because HBE applied to cultural anthropology for the most part for NSF, right? There's that distinction, which puzzles some people. One of my colleagues who you probably know and we've interviewed on the podcast is technically cultural here, but we all do biocultural work. So it just, yeah, it's one of those things I like to sort of, put out there because some of our grad student listeners will be in the field and trying to navigate this?
2: You know, I came out of University of Washington with a very strictly HBE training. I didn't have any exposure to f cultural evolution at that point, even that I really didn't have very much exposure to either. And then I came to UCLA. I was the human behavioral ecologist at the time, right? Um, Brian Wood is here now, but for a long time, it was just me. And then there were behavioral ecologists, Susan Perry and Joan Silk, but we had Rob Boyd here and we had Clark and Dan Fessler. And so I all of a sudden was sort of thrown into this world where we were all interacting with each other on a really regular basis and all these joint lab groups and seminar series and things like that. And whereas I had come from a more hostile kind of academic upbringing about the divisions between these perspectives. I really got schooled out of that pretty quickly when I got here, and it wasn't that there weren't, you know, arguments back and forth between all these different parties, myself included. But it was done in such a way that, like, I always felt like I was really learning, and and more than the arguments, I feel like I've been able to sort of see the lines of connection between these three different viewpoints. And so, and now we have more sort of biocultural human biology people with Molly Cox and Abby Bickham. And it, it's been really fun to actually be in a department where everybody is represented. It was really good for me. Like, I feel like in some ways I got the first like few years of my time as a professor was just training that I wish I
1: had gotten as a grad student. Oh, I mean, that's probably true for so many of us. It's like direct on the job training. But another kind of under the hood question that I think will be really helpful for the grad students who listen to this podcast, which is a fair number, that you have another paper coming out recently about best practices for study site selection, community involvement, and culturally appropriate research methods. And we were hoping you could just kind of break down to some of the big bullet points for especially the graduate students who are wanting to do these really ethical approaches to the research, but lack some direct guidance in doing so.
2: Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this was such a fun paper to work on because it came out of a workshop that we did at Max Planck. I was not at all involved in the planning of it. I just participated. It was Michelle Klein and Katie Starkweather and Robin Nelson and Tanya Bro. She's a psychologist. Um, But they brought together all these people who had been working in the field for a long time. And part of the impetus was thinking about all the people who wanted to do work in non-weird places now that there had been this kind of backlash against, you know, limiting our science to weird kind of society. So part of it was, what do we do about the fact that now there's so many people that want to kind of drop in and do these studies? But it morphed into something that I think in the end was much more interesting, which was just a lot of self-reflection about general best practices. And I mean, for me, what I walked away with that was really important was just thinking about community engagement and the value of working in the same place for many years is I think that you are, I mean, A, you're emotionally connected to the people that you're working with. And I think that incentivizes best practices. But And you have this responsibility in terms of reporting back and developing methods together the way that we did with this genetic study and things like that. I think it makes better science. And I think it allows you to kind of develop your project in response to the particular context that you're working in. And I mean, this is why, again, coming back to this sort of slow science, you know, there's a real push for graduate students to like go to the field and come back their first field season with something publishable. And I'm very torn about this, right? Because I I don't want to do anything that would inhibit my students from being as productive as possible. And on the other hand, I think there's a lot of value in going and doing something that's a little bit more low key, where you're just absorbing what's going on around you, spending time talking to people and asking questions, and getting to know people. And sometimes the project that develops out of that in the end might be a stronger project, even if it takes a little bit longer to get off the ground.
1: I was just having this conversation with folks yesterday, uh, like my own work in Finland, I went back and forth for three years before a single data point is collected. And you know, that creates this massive gap in a CV where you don't have direct research publications. And most people will look at that and be like, well, you're useless and you haven't been doing anything for three years. Like, No, this is what it takes to do fieldwork and to do it right. And I I think there needs to be a a little bit better way of evaluating the effort that goes into doing the science right.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's a big part of it is figuring out how to get tenure review committees and people like that to appreciate that. I have, I would say, been really lucky at UCLA. Like I remember when I did my mid-tenure review, I had almost nothing from the HIMBA project, right? I started it when I started here. I was straight out of my PhD and they didn't penalize me for that. They basically said, like, we understand that there's all this sort of work going into starting up this new field site, and we see the potential in it, and kind of gave me a pass for a couple more years to be able to get some stuff out. Now, if I had not published anything on it by the time I went up for tenure, that might have been, you know, but I mean, part of the reason you're seeing this push of productivity now, that's the result of like years and years of data collection that's just finally starting to come out. I mean, I guess my one piece of advice is that if you are going to sort of put the time and energy into developing one of these long-term field sites, thinking strategically about how and what you're going to publish in that gap, I think is useful, whether it's methods papers, or it's theory papers, review papers, or, you know, some small slice that maybe you can publish or working on some sort of collaborative work. I do think it's like, given that we live in the publish or perish universe, it is worth kind of being a little bit strategic about it. And again, I was able to lean on some UCLA colleagues who were doing some cross-cultural work and they were like, just go collect data on this. And it was the kind of thing that frankly, you didn't need a ton of ethnographic background to be able to go out and collect this kind of data and, and be an author on the paper.
0: It's nice to follow up with you right after that tweet. One, because I've been working with Kara for a long time. So I've been assuring her she's going to be fine. She's still in the process. So she's still going to doubt me. I remember her getting ready for Finland. I know there's been a gap. And she just put out as many papers in one year as I put out during the first two phases of my tenure process. Right. So that's that's a thing. Right. We see productive people. We can recognize their productivity even before. They do. So it's great to hear your process. And I'm actually the TMP chair right now. I'm actually literally going to get off the phone and finish writing letters in which I do explain this long wind-up process that is involved, especially in cultural anthropology, which is essentially the side of things that you're describing, where it does take a few years to really develop a good ethnographic sense because you don't know what those data mean. I mean, if you'd done the sampling of DNA without knowing everything you knew, it would have blown your mind, and you would have published some really rash thing about, you know, the rates of this in this community, Uh, and it would have been a hot mess, right? And it would
1: have been misinterpreted and damaging, if nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who
0: knows? Right. And we know that happens, right? Like, this is a sort of... Uh, Ganoneth Sakari's Medusa's hair where he talked about knowing people for like a decade before he ever wrote about them and I was like that's ethically brilliant but how the hell does anyone build a career on that right.
2: Yeah. Again, that helped for me with going back to not increasing the scale of the project too much. So just going back and seeing the same people over and over. And now as we're sort of thinking about the next phase of things, we are thinking about like, well, you know, comparisons between Himba and Herrera, we're looking at sort of the spectrum of market integration. So there's other things now, where I feel like now that we have this sort of base, you can broaden out in the next phase. But initially, it was really nice to to come back and know who people were had some sort of a household census to start from when you come back the next year and stuff like that. So yeah, it's
0: been good. You just uh, answered our next question too, which was what comes next?
1: <laughs> and can you go back? I mean, like, how are things with your community? Have they been hit by COVID? Are you able to keep in touch? Namibia is one of the
2: most sparsely populated countries in the world. And Himba tend to live in the most sparsely populated area of a sparsely populated country. But they live in, obviously, like dense households and stuff, right?
0: That one guy and his 17 kids?
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, and his sister and his six wives and everybody else, right? So my understanding is that HIMBA themselves haven't been hit that hard, but it's very hard to know whether there's a lot of unreported cases. Sub-Saharan Africa in general was doing really well for a long time, and I've heard speculation, you know, is that because it, you know the age demographics are just so much younger there and maybe that was protective, or is it just that we don't have as good an accounting of cases? But So we have been in touch. We had our local team go out and pass out masks and do some information and stuff like that, but they they're wanting us to come back. And I would really like to go back. I was last there in September of 2019. So just a few months before the pandemic hit. So but I'm not sure exactly when I've been really trying to think about what the right thing to do is and the the problem for me is with kids if I have to go in quarantine then before I can go into the community then quarantine before I come back it's just
1: so much time away from it's a month it's basically an additional month of just quarantine
2: yeah yeah so I have a hard time with that just because I have these hard limits of how long I can be with kids but yeah I'm hoping fingers crossed that they have been sort of separated enough this is where the separation from the market economy might be a good thing and that maybe Maybe they they just have had less exposure and it hasn't been so bad.
1: Well, since you mentioned them, the kids, we always kind of like to end our podcast on a happy note or a fun note. And it's, you know, what about you outside of research and being a professor in field work? You've got kids, but what other fun things do you do? Oh,
2: I, you know, it's funny. I I knew this question was coming and I, I talked to my kids last night. They're going to ask me what I do for fun. Right now, like, what do I do besides run back and forth to the baseball field? Because both kids are playing Little League. And my son said, you play 13. Because I just taught him this card. Game, 13.
1: I don't know this card. We have
2: been playing that. When I'm, you know, away from them, I have been attempting for like the third time to complete one of these couch to 5K. (laughs) I'm like determined to see if I can be a runner. And like, you know, everybody's like, you can do it. You just have to you know, learn enough. And I'm like, I don't know. I might just hate running.
1: Like that is me. Like I have done that couch to 5K and I have played rugby, which is basically nothing but running and hitting people. Yes. And no matter what, I hate running. I just I have never liked it, and <laughs> I don't well, think I like ever will.
2: Halfway through, and I'm making progress, but I feel like it's the easy half of the training program, right? It's going to start to go up a lot in terms of time, so I'm going to see if I can
1: do it and see how I feel at the end of it. But I've been committed to that as an extracurricular activity. <laughs> Are you reading, watching, or listening to anything fun these days? I've been
2: watching somewhat topically relevant, I suppose, to my research. I've been watching Sex Education on Netflix, which I really like.
0: Is that the Masters and Johnson show?
2: No, that's Masters of Sex. I have not actually watched that. Sex Education is about...
0: Oh, that's where the kid's mom is a sex ed person.
2: Sex therapist, yeah. Yeah. Played by Gillian Anderson. But It's mostly a high school show about high school social
0: dynamics and things like that yeah my wife and kids watch I remember because her boundaries with the kids as I recall are like my wife's like just and the kids are like whoa too much information but then they know so much so yeah yeah
2: yeah I haven't gotten quite there with my kids yet I feel like I'm just waiting for like them to tip over to where they have all sort of questions
0: (laughs) ours was in kindergarten they came back going like we said this in class and we got a call like maybe you can wait or tell your kids, if you want to tell them these things so early, maybe you could tell them to wait a few years to share it with the rest of the class. So.
2: I'll like answer anything they ask, but I'm trying not to answer things that they don't ask. The fine line of trying to walk. It's,
0: it's funny that you say you were thinking about this question. It's like the hardest question for most of our guests. They're just like, I can talk about research all day, but please don't ask me what I do for fun. <laughs> yeah.
2: I should have better answers, I know.
0: It's all good. We've all been through it, and and certainly we always tell people, like, it's okay to like to read about anthropology or drive your kids to the baseball field or whatever that, I've missed that, so I can understand. This has been a great conversation. This was fun.
1: Yeah, and it was a great meeting because I don't know if we've ever actually met in person, I, I feel. We, I don't think
2: we have actually ever met. I know Chris, I think I've met at a conference at some point along the way. But yeah, Kara, I'm not sure we actually have ever
0: met. And we have crossed paths with millions of your students and collaborators. So it's one of those things where I'm like, I know I've met her because I know her work and I know her well. But maybe I haven't actually met met her. But now I know we did somewhat recently, and just acted like we were old friends because we have been running across each other's names for so long. Now we can do it for real with beverages. Well, this yeah. was
1: absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much again for your time. <laughs> Thank you.